slow. I'll be nice. Uh, about some things when it came to uh, doing the right thing. And that is part of what we're going to be covering in our uh, message, in the message here uh, from this text this morning. Uh, the last four chapters of Second Chronicles, uh, we have been looking uh, at what the chronicler, we don't know who the man was, we call him the chronicler, the human author, the divine author is, of course, the Holy Spirit. Uh, but uh, the chronicler has been talking about this uh, very interesting and prominent uh, king of Judah, the southern kingdom. This is after the division of the of the nation of Israel into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was composed of ten tribes, the southern kingdom of two tribes. And um, Jehoshaphat is part of the Davidic line, uh, who were the true kings of all twelve tribes, by the way, even though the ten tribes in the north didn't recognize the, the king of Judah, the kings of Judah, who were the Davidic in the Davidic line as their kings, they were their kings. Whether they acknowledged that or not was kind of irrelevant, to God at least. Um, and Jehoshaphat was one of the Davidic kings, and and a, quite a bit of uh, ink, if I can put it that way, is spilled by the chronicler about this man. He's a very, he's a very prominent figure in the Old Testament. Um, and the verses that we're looking at today, verses 31 and following through verse 3 of chapter 21, uh constitute the chronicler's concluding comments about this good king, King Jehoshaphat. By the way, Jehoshaphat means Jehovah judges, or Jehovah is judge. That can mean either one of those. Um, and that's what his name does mean in Hebrew. So, three, three things... You can probably see in your Bibles they're probably delineated by three different uh, uh, in th- three different paragraphs, if you will. Uh, the first point uh, is the first four contained in the first four verses there uh, that we're looking at, and that is Jehoshaphat's reign is summarized in the first verses, four verses of our text. Um, in the uh, next three verses of our text, verses thirty-five to thirty-seven of chapter twenty. Jehoshaphat's new alliance is condemned. That's what I was referring to with the children there. And then in the first three verses of chapter 21, Jehoshaphat's death, burial, and successor are announced. And that's the sermon right there. So, I'm going to take it one at a time. First of all, we're going to look at uh, uh, the summary of Jehoshaphat's reign contained in the first four verses of our text. Um, first of all, the, the chronicler talks about uh, the length of, of Jehoshaphat's reign. He was 35 years uh, old when he became king, and he reigned, says the chronicler, uh, 25 years in, in the capital city of uh, the southern kingdom, uh, Jerusalem. Now, the chronicler does record that he reigned 25 years, but uh, the, the author of Kings, who the chronicler has access to the book of Kings, uh, and uses quite heavily um, the book of Kings, and oftentimes verbatim copies what the Kings says, but not all the time. But anyway, he has the book of Kings by him, and the author of Kings reports that Jehoshaphat ruled for only 22 years. If you go to Second Kings chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 16, you'll compare the two, and you'll see that he only gives us 22 years. So are the liberals right? The book of the Bible, the Bible is 
is full of errors and written by mere men? No. No. When you see things like this, just know there are reasonable explanations for stuff like this for every one of the apparent or seemingly contradictory passages where there's uh, where there's maybe uh, things don't seem to line up, and this is one of those passages. What is the uh, what is the explanation? Well, in all likelihood, the chronicler who says it's twenty five years, he is including three years of what is known as co regency, right? Co regency with Asa, his father. What co regency means is when two kings are ruling over a kingdom. At the same time, in effect, they are sharing the rule of that kingdom. And co-regency almost always happens with father and son. As the father is nearing the end of his life, he wants to kind of smooth the the transition. Uh, That's one of the reasons, anyway, for doing it, into the the next king. And so he brings his son, as it were, on board as co-king for a time uh, and shepherds him through that transition process. So that happened more than once in uh, in the, amongst the kings of Israel. And that's almost certainly what is going on. And by the way, that makes sense that there was a co-regency because you may recall um, that Asa, near the end of his reign, suffered from a severe foot disease that probably hobbled him, prevented him from performing functions he had previously done without any problem, but no longer could because of his lack of mobility uh, or pain or both. So it made sense that Jehoshaphat would continue to uh, help his dad, you know, and that would become an official co-regent kind of thing. So that's the almost certain explanation of the discrepancy between the chronicler and uh, the author of Kings. So, he also, in, uh, in his summary, not only talks about the length of uh, Jehoshaphat's reign, but he also says that his reign <clears throat> resembled that of his father, Asa, King Asa, the previous king. Now, the chronicler, how, how so? Well, the chronicler records uh, that both of these kings, both Asa and his son Jehoshaphat, um, the, excuse me, the, the chronicler's record of the, these two men includes descriptions for both of them of acts of disobedience as well as acts of obedience. So they share that in common. There's, there's obedience, but there's some disobedience mixed in with their obedience. By the way, that's true of every monarch mentioned in the Bible. Uh, which I believe, my little editorial aside here, which I believe is God's way of making sure that nobody who read about these guys ever mistook one of them for the Messiah. I think I've said that before. But uh, every one of them had a fatal flaw. David, Solomon, Jehoshaphat, uh, uh, Josiah, every one of them did something profoundly stupid or evil at some point uh, in his life, uh, which, which of course, disqualifies him from being the Messiah. Um, at any rate... Uh, the, the chronicler uh, speaks of acts of obedience and disobedience. Uh, and on the whole, the chronicler and the Holy Spirit, who is speaking through him as he writes, wants us, both of them want us to see both Jehoshaphat and Asa as uh, in a positive light. We are to view them in a positive light. Evidence, this is evident from the fact that both men are described here in our text in verse 32 as having done what was right in the sight of the Lord. That's the general overall description of their reign. They, they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Um, uh, and this makes it clear that they were both generally faithful to the Lord most of the time. Uh, but not all of the time. 
as is evident from what the chronicler shares next about Jehoshaphat. We're not talking about Asa anymore, we're talking about Jehoshaphat. So he goes, and he goes, ah, he was a good king, but, and then he proceeds. And he proceeds to talk about, in verse 33, Jehoshaphat's failure to remove all of the high places from the land under his control. High places were places of worship, unauthorized places of worship that um, were borrowed, a practice borrowed from the pagan nations around Israel, including the Canaanites, um, and that the Israelites and their wanted to imitate. Didn't want to have to go to Jerusalem. It was, you know, it was 20 miles walk. That's too much. I'd rather have a place on this mountain up here with a nice tree that I can, you know, kiss or whatever they did with them. I don't know. Um, and, and call it worship. So anyway, Jehoshaphat doesn't remove all those high places from the land. And again, this is yet another unfortunate way in which his reign resembled that of his father Asa. Asa made the same mistake, as we see in chapter 14, verse 3 and 5, and you compare that with chapter 15 of Second Chronicles, verse 17. Uh, we see Asa, uh, he, he likewise didn't get rid of all the uh, high places during his reign. Now, in the case of Jehoshaphat, regarding him, he didn't remove all the places uh, of worship, unauthorized places of worship, but the chronicler does go on in verse 33 uh, to suggest that Jehoshaphat's failure to entirely rid the kingdom of these places was not so much his fault as it was uh, the fault of those under his rule, the inhabitants of Judah collectively considered. Let's look at verse 33. The high places, however, were not removed. Then it says, the people had not yet directed their hearts uh, to the God of their fathers. And if you compare that with the king's account, the king's account says the high, pla- uh, high places were not removed and the people still worshipped the Lord in those high places. Now, the chronicler takes the king's language and changes it up a little bit and points to not their the fact that they were still worshiping in the high places, but he says their hearts were not directed toward the Lord, as evident by the fact that they were implied, but the king says it, they were continuing to want to worship in those high places. So this is a place where there's uh, uh, where the chronicler deviates from what the writer of the king says, which he often does, um, and or embellishes uh, or explains something, or sometimes uh, withholds some stuff too on occasion. At any rate, so Jehoshaphat didn't do it, but he had pressure from the people not to, is what it essentially says. The text implies there, um, as we noted earlier on, and this, as the chronicler noted earlier on in his account of Jehoshaphat's reign. Again, he had a heart for the Lord. He did. Sadly, however, his subjects considered as a whole we're not as enthusiastic about the Lord as is evident from what I just read to you. So, his reign looks a lot like his dad's reign in many respects. Um, and and this, the, my comment about the people uh, being have, having hearts collectively speaking that were not exactly devoted to the Lord in, uh, that, uh, in the kingdom of Judah... This lack of their heartfelt devotion to the Lord on the part of the covenant people of that day who were in Judah um, led to enormous troubles 
and suffering for them in subsequent decades and centuries. If you just keep reading, including Jehoram's reign, which we're going to get into here, Lord willing, next time we're together, um, this this national apathy, it's worse than apathy, this natural national... a kind of heart rebellion against God and chafing under God's rule um, hurts numerous generations of Israelites for centuries to come. They pay a dear price. You know the you know the big prices were Assyria and Babylon and what they did to those people. Assyria the north and Babylon the south and then and then dec- uh, centuries afterwards of subjugation and endangerment from other nations around them, even after they got back into the land, some of them, suffered a great deal. So there's some lessons just to be learned here uh, from the chronicler's words regarding the hearts of the people. Uh, First of all, it's quite obvious that God's concern is with the heart, first and foremost. Now, actions are not unimportant to the Lord. Outward actions need to be right and just and, and holy and godly. But he doesn't just see what you and I are doing outwardly. He is examining what's going on inside, our motives. James talks about that. You, you act with wrong motives, James talks about, and the Lord sees that. God is concerned with the heart, the heart of the individual believer, that's evident from what we read in uh, uh, that well-known passage with uh, Samuel as he's looking, uh, the Lord is going to point David out as the, as the future king of Israel just to replace Saul. And uh, we read in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 16, Then it came about when they entered that he, Samuel, looked at Eliab, who was David's uh, older brother, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him, meaning this is, this is the Lord's anointed, Eliab. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For, so he gives the reason, for uh, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I trust nobody, this is not an epiphany for anybody here, but you can't hide a thing from God. Can't hide a thing from Him. Don't even try. It's a worthless endeavor. Um, The Lord knows everything, and even if nobody else knows about some sin that you're committing in thought, word, or deed, um, you are being seen. Uh, by the Lord. And uh, if you're a Christian, he forgives you of that sin. He may have to discipline you for that sin because of your uh, choices. But he loves you. Uh, but he's not going to... He's, he's not going to not see that sin that you are engaging in. The Lord sees the heart. And he's concerned with the motives and the attitudes of the heart first and foremost. Because they dictate what our outward actions will be. Right? Uh, but he's not just concerned, and this passage makes this point even better that, that we're looking at here in Second Chronicles. He's not just concerned with the heart of the individual. Yes, he's very concerned about that. But he's also concerned with the heart, if I can put it this way, of the church. Or some 
branch of the church collectively considered. God works and, and works with the church as a group of people, not as just disparate individuals. He, he sees us individually, yes, but he sees us also as a church, as a body of people who are bound together by, by, uh, by mutual association and by vow-taking and, and uh, uh, that sort of thing and commitment. Uh, and he looks at bodies like ours, like the PCA, like the evangelical church in America. And he sees a collective picture and is concerned about the, if, the collective heart of his church and his people in that church. And again, this text makes that clear. So, by way of application, what's going on in your heart? How are your affections towards God and Jesus? Is he a high priority in your life? Are your affections toward the Lord, if if you're a professing Christian, have your affections cooled from, say, last year or five or ten years ago? Is there some stone that's made its way back into the heart of flesh? You see, what you and I need to do, if that's the case, is we need to be deliberate about doing what we read there in verse, the opposite of, well, no, what we read about but hadn't happened yet, and that is we need to direct our hearts to the God of our fathers. You see, we can do something about our heart. We can, you know, I just read Psalm 103 this morning. You know, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to himself, to his heart, to his soul, same thing. And he's saying, you need to bless God, soul. Get with the program. Sometimes we need to talk to ourselves that way. If there is indifference, if you've, if you're slacking in, in your spiritual, um, time with the Lord, if you are slacking about some commandment that you know he's given you, but you're just really not all that excited about having to keep that commandment because it's inconvenient or it's kind of a pet sin that he's he's messing with and, you know, he, he's meddling, as they say down here in, uh, uh, in the South. <clears throat> um, that's not good. That's not a good situation for your heart to be in, and you need to do something about that. And if you're a Christian, you'll want to. Not always perfectly, but you'll at least go, I need to, this is not a good place for me, spiritually. Now God, you have to will to do something about it, but only he can make your doing successful. Only he can push, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> push you forward spiritually. You're, you have to make an act of the choice as an act of the will, but he is the one who's going to make that act of the will to redirect your heart towards God successful at being redirected, if I can put it that way. So you've got to trust God, not trust your pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of thing. But you have to make a decision. Say, I've got to, I've got to get back on track here. Or maybe you've never been on track. 
Maybe you've never really cared much about Jesus or about God. You may not be a Christian if that's the case. You need to you need to direct your heart toward the Lord for the very first time, perhaps. And oh, by the way, you need to know that you don't have the ability in yourself to even make that choice without God giving you the ability. But if you sense a desire to turn to the Lord and trust Christ perhaps for the first time in your life as your only hope of being forgiven and reconciled to God, then that means God is giving you the ability to do that, if you want to do that. And what you need to do right now is in the quietness of your heart say, Lord Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm a train wreck. I deserve your wrath, the Father's wrath, the Spirit's wrath. <clears throat> and you're my only hope of escaping that wrath. Would you please have mercy upon my soul? and apply what you did in your life, death, and resurrection to save me. That's what you need to do, because you're not just cool, you're dead without Christ. Okay, so Jehoshaphat's um, reign is summarized in those first few verses. But secondly, uh, he goes on, and uh, in the next few verses, 35 to 37, we see there Jehoshaphat's new alliance uh, is condemned. Who is this alliance with? Well, <clears throat> this alliance is with the illegitimate king of Israel. Remember I said earlier on, the true king of all 12 tribes, because all 12 tribes were in covenant with the Lord, the true king of all of them was only and ever the Davidic king, the David and his successors. Now, the ten northern tribes up in the kingdom of Israel, they did not recognize uh, the Judean king, the Davidic king uh, in Judah. But that doesn't mean he wasn't the real king. The guys up north, all of them were uh, charlatans. They were, they were um, usurpers. They were illegitimate. And Ahaziah, no less than his dear father Ahab, was very illegitimate. He was the notorious, uh, he was the son of that notoriously wicked royal couple, Ahab and uh, Jezebel, sweet lady. And that's the one with whom Jehoshaphat makes an alliance on this occasion. Now this alliance is a maritime alliance, having to do with trading ships. Uh, what these two kings did, uh, well the one true king and the other uh, uh, supposed king, of the northern kingdom, what Jehoshaphat and Ahaziah did was they uh, pooled their resources and their efforts and their labor together to build a fleet of ships uh, with which to trade with other nations. And in particular, we learn from uh, the king's account to get gold from Tarshish and bring it back to uh, uh, to them to enrich them and their and their their nations. And so they pool, uh, after agreeing to do this, they pool the resources and they build a fleet of ships. Now, the chronicler's account of Jehoshaphat's maritime venture contrasts, appears to contrast, significantly from the account in Kings. So, I'm going to give you this. In Kings, what, and we're not going to look there right now, but just trust me here. In Kings, Jehoshaphat's ships... Uh, never set sail, but are actually um, destroyed while they're still in port. God just, I'm guessing what happened, but he just brought a gale, uh, uh, you know, some 
something resembling a hurricane. Gale force winds caused the ships to bash against each other and break apart so they couldn't couldn't sail. Something like that probably happened. I don't know. The Lord might have just reached down out of heaven and crushed them. I don't know what he did. But he destroyed those ships. Um, but in Kings, like I say, the ships never set sail and they're destroyed. Also in Kings, Jehoshaphat turns down an offer after the, the record of the destruction of the ships. He turns down an offer from Ahaziah to undertake a joint shipbuilding venture. And you're like, wait a minute, he built ships, they get destroyed, and he's offering to build ships with them again. Now in Chronicles that we're looking at, which is our passage, the Chronicler's account opens with an already existing alliance that already exists between Ahaz, Ahaziah, and Jehoshaphat. And the Chronicler goes on to describe the destruction of ships that the two of them had built, and indicates that they were destroyed by God. That's where we get this from, that God did this, on account of his great displeasure with this alliance between the two of these men. Those accounts, and you might not have followed quite all the details that I just uh, enumerated there, but those accounts don't seem to, on a first glance, square up. Like, what's going on here? So here's what's going on here. This is how you harmonize these two accounts in a way that doesn't contradict either one of them. Jehoshaphat's first effort at building ships for the purpose of engaging in trade, which is referred to in both our passage, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 36, and also 1 Kings 22, verse 48, Jehoshaphat's first effort at shipbuilding was a joint undertaking with Israel's king Ahaziah. However, the author of Kings does not mention the fact that this first fleet of ships were the product of an alliance between the two men. It just mentions Jehoshaphat's name. It doesn't mention Ahaziah. The Lord was greatly displeased with the fact that Jehoshaphat had allied himself on that first occasion with Ahaziah, a wicked king, and the Lord registered his disapproval of that first alliance and, and its ships that were produced by it here in our Second Chronicles text. He did that in two ways. First of all, recorded in verse 37, first of all, he sent the prophet uh, Eliezer, son of, where was it again? Uh, son of Dodavahu. Try to say that three times fast. Um, he sends this prophet, a mouthpiece of, of the Lord, and rebukes um, Jehoshaphat. That's the first way he registers his disapproval. And then the second way is he crushes the ships that were produced by that alliance. That's the first endeavor between the two of them. At some point after the destruction of that first fleet of ships by the Lord, Ahaziah reapproaches the king of Judah a second time and invites him to make a second attempt at building a fleet of trading ships together with him. Ahaziah's second offer to Jehoshaphat to jointly build and sail, by the way, these ships together is recorded over in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 49. I'll say more about it in just a moment. But first, before I talk about that second effort, uh, it's important to point out that the alliance 
with Ahaziah, described here in verse 36. <clears throat> so he allied himself with him, he being uh, Jehoshaphat, allied himself with him being Ahaziah to make ships to go to Tarshish. That alliance with Ahaziah was not the first alliance that he had entered into with a ruler of the northern kingdom. And I'm not talking about the first alliance with Ahaziah. I'm talking about his father Ahab. Jehoshaphat, we read some weeks earlier, and covered this some weeks earlier, foolishly allied himself with Ahaziah's wicked dad years earlier. You may recall how that went. Uh, God sharply rebuked uh, Jehoshaphat back then for making that alliance with uh, Ahab through the mouthpiece of one of his previous prophets. I can't remember his name right now. It's in chapter... Um, it was uh, Jehu, the son of Hanani. This is back in chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. So the Lord rebuked him back then and said, you should not have been doing this. In fact, I'll read it. Let me read it. Chapter 19, verse 20... Uh, ver, uh, chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. Then Jehoshaphat, this is right after the disastrous battle that he engaged in with, uh, with Ahab, that Ahab got uh, killed. Remember? Struck with a random arrow. Right? Random arrow. Uh, then Jehoshaphat, this is cha- uh, verse 1 of chapter 19. Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Anani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? He's talking about that alliance with Ahab. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yahweh did not want the Davidic kings, the real kings of the 12 tribes of Israel, did not want the, the descendants of David to ally themselves with the apostate rulers of the northern kingdom. He did not want that. And Je, uh, Jehoshaphat should have learned that lesson after this alliance with Ahab and after that rebuke that he received from Hanani, uh, excuse me, from Jehu, the son of Hanani. Should have learned his lesson. Sadly, children, who was a slow learner? Jehoshaphat. Turned out to be a slow learner, as evidenced by his decision once again, not once, but twice, well, excuse me, not, excuse me, not once, uh, his, his decision to ally himself with another ruler of the northern kingdom, the wicked son of Ahab, Ahaziah. It wasn't until the Lord, which is recorded here in our Chronicles account, it wasn't until the Lord rebukes him this second time after the alliance with Ahab for allying himself with yet another apostate Jew, and that's what he was, that's what Ahaziah was, an apostate Jew. And he not only rebuked him through the... um, uh, through the uh, prophet that he sent, but he also then destroyed the fruit of their joint labors, that first fleet, that Jehoshaphat finally wakes up and goes, I don't think the Lord wants me to do this. And that, by the way, he, the fact that he learned his lesson is evident from, now you can turn to 1 Kings 22, Verse 49. Because this records, 1 
Kings 22, verse 48 and 49, by the way, are the only things that are said here. That, and that's what corresponds with the, the text that we're reading here, verses 35 to 37 of, of uh, Second Chronicles 20. But anyway, so I'll, I'll back up to verse uh, 48. Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir. I said go to Tarshish, to go to Ophir for gold. But they did not go, for the ships were broken at Etzion Geber. That was the first effort. Okay, God destroyed the ships before they left port. They didn't get the gold from Ophir. Then it says in verse 49, Then Ahaziah, and by the way, that first effort was an alliance with Ahaziah. It's just not recorded by the kings. It's recorded by the chronicles, chronicler. Then, then it says in verse 49, Then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships. So he's making a second offer with a second group of ships that he proposes we make and we sail together, a joint fleet, that we both operate. That's Ahaziah's offer, second offer, uh, to build a second fleet of ships after the first fleet had been destroyed. The first... Yeah, okay. So what what happens... Well, I didn't read the whole verse. Let me read verse 49 again from 2 Kings 22. Then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships that they were going to have to remake or rebuild. And notice the last part, but Jehoshaphat was not willing. There it is. Learned his lesson. I don't think I need to be doing this. The Lord just destroyed my ships that I sunk a whole lot of my gold into building along with this this uh, apostate uh, king who isn't real, a real king anyway. I'm pretty sure, and, and then they got a firm rebuke from his prophet. I'm pretty sure I just need to not engage in this kind of behavior anymore. He learned his lesson. The hard way. But he learned. Folks, moral to the story, when God's trying to get your attention through his word, or perhaps through godly counsel from another individual who knows what the word says and tells you this is biblical counsel, don't resist. Don't put up a fight. Don't dig in your heels. Don't postpone Don't be a slow learner and learn the hard way that his true children, God's not going to let you stay off on that path of unrighteousness for very long before he's going to firmly pull you back to himself and saying, we're not going there. And that can hurt, that pulling back part can hurt. There's another application to this. A lesson, if you will. And that is the Lord, I think, I think this is legitimate from this passage and, uh, and this 
especially that First Kings uh, verse that I read. The Lord doesn't want believers, His covenant people who are truly in covenant with Him, the Lord doesn't want His people to be chummy or, to use New Testament language, yoked with individuals who profess to be believers in the Lord Jesus, New Testament language there, but who exhibit clear signs of being unconverted false brethren. Paul addresses this in First Chronicles, uh, First, uh, Chronicles, First Corinthians, chapter five. I won't read the whole passage, but recall this is where the man uh, is, has immoral uh, relationship with his. Yeah. Anyway, won't go into the details. There are kids here. Uh, but uh, Paul is rebuking the elders in Corinth for not doing their jobs. Uh, they tolerate this guy and try to be loving um, by not calling him to the carpet for his rebellion against the Lord. And he says in verse 6, you're, bo- you're boasting, you gentlemen in particular who are in charge, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven. By the way, old leaven here is, uh, Morales actually spoke of this in this uh, book that we're reading. Our, he says, describes them as attitudes and behaviors of our previous life in exile. In other words, the non-Christian life. Uh, clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the leaven, unleavened bread of sincerity of truth. And then he says this. This is the part I wanted to get to. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And then he clarifies. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. I wasn't telling you not to associate with them, is what Paul says. I wrote, uh, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters. I didn't mean don't uh, have interaction with them. For then you would have to go out of the world. Of course, that's not going to happen. But then he says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do not, uh, do you not judge those who are within the church? And the answer is yes. Uh, the church is supposed to do that. But those who are outside, God judges. And then he says, he finishes up with a quote from Deuteronomy. He says, Remove the wicked man from yourselves. This is a, this is church discipline he's referring to here. And we are supposed to be leaven in the world. We are supposed to interact with unbelievers. The monastic idea of, of, uh, of closing yourself off from the world with walls is simply utterly unbiblical. Um, we are to interact with unbelievers. We need to be salt and light to them and share the gospel with them. But what we don't need to do is we don't need to treat somebody who who wants us who claims to be a believer in the Lord but who exhibits clear signs of practicing sin without repenting of it. Now that's key without repenting of it and practicing those are the key words there. 
We're not allowed to continue to be chummy-chummy with folks like that. This is why if or when a church member is excommunicated properly, that is to say it's properly done the right way and the right, you know, uh, the right um, um, censure has been invoked. When a church member is excommunicated, we have to change the way we interact with them. Not just me and the elders, but you. Now, this is not shunning. We don't shun people who have been who have been declared by the church as far as we can tell you're not a Christian right now, so you're no longer a member of our church. We don't shun unbelievers, do we? We don't say stay out of our church, you're unclean. What we do is we keep in mind that they are unbelievers. We're happy to have them come in here and we try to, but what we try to do is, we should anyway, is try to look for opportunities to talk with them about Jesus. We don't say, get out of here, get back. We don't want to have anything to do with you. And that includes an ex-member of the church who has been properly put out of the church. And I think this passage that we're looking at supports that notion that no apostates, you know, again, let me say this. uh, One of the commentators made this point. He made this point, and I think he's right. He said, Israel was allowed to interact with the nations around Israel, the the Gentile nations. They could could make arrangements with them and trade with them and stuff like that. That wasn't a problem. The problem was the north because they were still in covenant. But they were covenant breakers. They were apostates. They were unbelievers as, as a whole, collectively. Of course, there were some believers scattered in there, presumably. But that was the problem, was they, they, they made lip, gave lip service to be followers of Jehovah, and they, it was mere lip service. Okay, last point, and it's brief. It really is. It's, it's only this much right here. Jehoshaphat's death, burial, and successor are announced. I do that because my wife has gotten on me and say, you'll say it's, you know, brief, and then you'll talk another 20 minutes. I'm not going to do that this time. Um, first of all, his death is noted in verse 1. Um, it is euphemistically described by the chronicler as he, he slept with his fathers. Uh, that phrase is common. You've all heard that if, if you've read your Old Testament uh, before. And this is alluding, the sleeping, by the way, is alluding to the fact that their bodies are laying down, as if sleeping, in the ground. And the use of the word sleep to describe death for the believer uh, or, or for, for a person is, is implies that the body will one day awaken. I think implicit in this language is the promise of a resurrection, either unto life or unto death bodily. And by the way, the Old Testament speaks of this in Daniel chapter 12. Uh, Turn with me there, uh, if you want. I encourage you to. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Don't ask me to explain verse 1. I'm not going to give you an explanation here, but I'm going to read it just... But verse 2 is where the point is being made. Chapter 12, Daniel, verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise... 
And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And then it says this in verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. There it is. These, meaning your people, uh, that were just referred to in the last verse, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Um, and he's talking about bodily resurrection there. The Old Testament believers, Sadducees had no excuse for not believing in the resurrection of the body. If they were careful, they were selective readers of their Old Testaments, um, not careful readers of their Old Testaments. They believed, in other words, what they wanted to believe. They were the liberals of their day. So, um, anyway, just wanted to make that point. So he is described as having died, having slept with his fathers. His burial place is identified as well. He was buried with his ancestors in the city of David, uh, which was the southern part of uh, Jerusalem, uh, the greater city of Jerusalem. And then his successor to the throne is announced. And this is the point I want to close with. He announces it, and he says um, in verse... Three there, after describing how Jehoshaphat gave gifts to uh, all his sons, including uh, fortified cities in Judah to help solidify the reign of the, the control of the, of the royal family over the whole of the land. Uh, he says there at the end of verse 3, but he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. Pratt uh, Richard Pratt, who's one of the commentators who I use, uh, along with a uh, Dillard, a guy named Ray Dillard, and some other, a few others occasionally. But Pratt says this, and I think it's insightful. He says, Jehoshaphat may not have considered the character of his sons as he made his choice of successor. Jehoram proved to be the cause of many troubles for Judah. The chronicler, and I'm inserting this, uh, Pratt didn't say this, but and God. The chronicler and God may have been suggesting that Jehoshaphat's choice was the cause of this turn for the worse, meaning in Israel's history and the suffering that they were later to endure because of um, godly king, uh, ungodly kings who helped lead them as a nation into greater ungodliness. And, and a godly king designated an ungodly son to be his successor. Don't think the Lord wanted it that way. Firstborns were not always the one that sat on the throne. Think of David. Others as well. There are other examples that we could cite where you, the firstborn didn't actually end up sitting on the throne even though he was passed over. David's the best example, but there there's one or two others in, in redemptive history, as I recall. Godliness is, was more important than primogeniture. And yet, here a godly man seems to me messed up. Now, maybe all of the sons were ungodly, but I doubt it. I, I think there were probably some at least reasonably godly 
children there. He's, you know, he had four or five other sons. But he chose, well, he's the first. You know, he's my first son. I think there's a lesson here. And the lesson is, uh, you know, certain things in terms of choices we make and, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Um, godliness needs to be the most important criteria, not something else that the world might say is an important criteria. And that's especially true. I'll tell you where it is. That's especially true when it comes to the leaders that you have in your church. You don't elect somebody because he's the guy with the deepest pockets to be an elder in your church. You don't elect somebody because he's the mayor or a local uh, city councilman and an influential person in the community. You don't elect somebody because they're a pillar of the community to be uh, uh, a shepherd in Christ's church. So if, if and when elections occur for deacon or elder in the future, don't look at any of that worldly stuff when you're making your, should I, do I want to, do I think this guy would make a good elder or a good deacon or not? Uh, that's not the criteria. In conclusion, I would just say this. All of the sons of David, descendants of David, died and remained dead, except one. And Jehoshaphat is a picture of, as, as the king of, as the Davidic king of, of Judah, um, he is, points us to Christ. But where the uh, comparison, there are many places where the comparison doesn't, uh, doesn't fit, because Jehoshaphat was a sinner, Jesus was not. But one of the big things that's mentioned here in the text is Jehoshaphat died. And yes, Jesus died too, but then you know what happened. He is alive forevermore. And that's why he's the source of life to anyone who will turn to him. And him alone, not to your church membership, your baptism, your uh, I obey my parents or I don't beat my kids. None of that stuff is what God is, gets you right with God. It's only Jesus Christ in his, his perfect obedience that must be credited to you so God can look at you and say, you are righteous in my sight. Because you're not righteous in his sight without Jesus. You're, we're all uh, riddled with sin in God's sight. Um, even, if we, even if we turn out, uh, compare well to our neighbor. Uh, we don't compare well to God. And so we're all sinners. We need the righteousness of Christ. We also need for Jesus to pay the debt to God's justice that we owe for our sin. All of us have sinned. We've all offended God infinitely, and he has a right to give us an infinite punishment for that. And only Jesus can pay that. Well, I say that. Well, people that go to hell are paying it, but they never stop paying because they are never able to fully pay the debt. That's why hell is forever. Only Jesus, who is God, is God, can fully absorb infinite wrath and take it away. That's why you need him, him alone. The Jesus of the Bible, who is 100% God, 100% man, and the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage.